Our speaker this evening is celebrated author, taste testing expert, and self-taught chef, chef Jack Bishop. He's the editorial director and chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen on PBS, as well as the tasting lab expert for both America's Test Kitchen and Cook's Country from America's Test Kitchen. Jack's career in the publishing business began in 1988 when he started working at Cook's Magazine. He later collaborated on the launch of Cook's Illustrated in 1993, for which he has since authored dozens of articles. While at America's Test Kitchen, he established their book division and later co-directed Cook's Country Magazine in 2005. Over the years, he has penned several cookbooks, including A Year in a Vegetarian Kitchen, Vegetables Every Day, The Complete Italian Vegetarian Cookbook, Pasta e Verdura, and Lasagna, and edited The Best Recipe. He also regularly appears on Today on NBC. Today, Jack will discuss the 100 recipes everyone should know how to make. Please join me, join me in welcoming Jack Bishop to the Boston Athenaeum. Good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you, everybody, for coming out. Um, I hope you all said there are actually going to be treats afterwards baked freshly this morning at America's Test Kitchen in Brookline. So if you're all patient and nice, you will, you will be rewarded with something sweet afterwards. Um, uh, I, I love being here, and this talk actually seems um, very appropriate for the venue. Um, I want to really talk about the origins of a recipe, um, the practice of writing down the instructions to make a dish, um, and look at that over time. Um, and how that has evolved, especially in the internet age, and how I think we should be using recipes as we go forward. Um, so the uh, first re written recipe that we have still uh, uh, access to dates back about 4,000 years, uh, comes from Mesopotamia. Uh, it is, a, um, no surprise, a recipe for beer. Now, if you think of all the things that you know were, were invented 4,000 years ago or discovered 4,000 years ago, beer must have seemed like a true miracle and something that you clearly wanted to be able to pass on. Um, this particular uh, recipe, uh, the convention is that it is a recipe that was given by God um, because it must have seemed truly unbelievable that those ingredients uh, could create something uh, that has that delicious effect that beer has. Um, Obviously, with most things written, the advent of the printing press really changed uh, the, the way that we looked at recipes. Uh, 16th and century and 17th century Holland and England, really the proliferation of the written recipe in book form. Um, I think you can view the um, writing of recipe books in the 18th century as part of the whole enlightenment, let's catalog everything, you know, as part of household management. Uh, everything that we eat, everything that we make, everything that we do will end up in a recipe book. I think um, our, the great contribution that Boston has to make in this 4,000 year history probably is Fannie Farmer uh, and thinking about the um, scientification, I guess, of a recipe in the 1890s and early part of the 20th century. This idea of um, household management being a science, 
uh, nutrition being a science, and that the writing of a recipe uh, being a much more precise thing. Uh, for those of you who wonder about uh, measuring cups and measuring spoons, we have to thank Fanny Farmer. Her, one of her many contributions was that um, before that time, the recipe was really written assuming that um, you knew all of the things that were not actually written. Um, you know, think about a, a novel where every third word is omitted. Um, in many cases, if you look at 17th or 18th, even 19th century recipes, you know, they're meant to jog the memory of the person who already knows how to make the dish. Um, with sort of changes in culture, um, more and more uh, women setting up houses who may not have known very much about cooking, or in Fannie Farmer's case, needed to be able to direct people who were doing the cooking for them. Um, there was a need for a more precise recipe that actually had amounts in them and didn't assume that if it just listed the ingredients, you would know the amounts uh, that you needed for that recipe. Um, thinking about the um, 20th century and recipes, women's magazines, especially in, in the US, um, and newspapers to some extent, are really important sources of how we think about recipes. Um, the modern three by five recipe card uh, really was popularized by uh, women's magazines. Um, it was a value add, as they would say in modern publishing, um, that uh, would first come from the editors and then a lot of marketers discovered, oh, the value of, of putting their recipe with their product name on a recipe card um, and getting it in the hands of people who were uh, cooking in mid-century, um, 20th century America. And so that's a snapshot, perhaps, of the history of um, the recipe until we get to the 1990s, which, as with almost everything that the internet has um, touched, the recipe has really, really changed. Um, I wanted to go back, though, and do a little bit more history before I get into the modern day. Um, one of the things I love about older books is you see, uh, especially in New England, um, a recipe book that was a receipt book. Um, and I mean receipt as in what you would get at Target uh, when you check out or at the supermarket. Um, and the uh, word recipe and receipt both have the same Latin root, uh, to receive or to take um, being the meaning. And really receipt is the earlier version. If you look at um, Chaucer, for instance, uh, there's medicinal uh, references to a receipt, which was a basically a formula for uh, combining different herbal ingredients um, to make medicine. Um, the recipe actually is uh, the imperative form of the Latin verb that uh, means to take. And so it really often appeared at the top of the receipt or the prescription. Um, that with that R and that crossed X, and it, it signaled take, as in take two aspirin, um, and do not call me in the morning. Um, you know, that was really the origin of the word recipe. Um, recipe does not really get used very much until uh, the 1700s, and frankly, receipt until maybe 50 years ago still was in fairly wide use in certain parts, especially uh, of New England um, and in England. I think within the last 50 years, 
you know, recipe has won. Um, the, 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 um, the proliferation, perhaps, of receipts, which we, uh, those of us who shop feel like we get receipts all day, it is very confusing. For somebody who doesn't understand, when you start talking about a receipt um, as the thing you are using to prepare a brownie, um, no, they're, they're like, no, that's the thing you get when you buy the brownie. Um, but uh, that is sort of a short history of um, that origin of the word. And I think the important thing there is it is meant to be a prescription. That is, it is a set of instructions that you are meant to follow in order to achieve a certain result or to solve a certain problem. And, um, you know, if we think about the way a recipe is used today, in a lot of ways, I think we've lost sight of what the original purpose of a recipe was. Um, you know, at its simplest, it's a formula. It's medicine. Um, it's it's math. It's chemistry. It's um, even some physics. Of you know, it is the one part of one ingredient, two parts of another, three parts of another. Um, if we are being precise, it's all in grams. Um, you know, unfortunately, Lincoln Chafee does not look like he's going to be president of the United States. And his big platform was we're all going to go metric, um, which for those of us who are bakers, would we recognize the value in having a recipe written in 100 grams, 200 grams, 150 grams in terms of ingredients. Um, it is much easier for scaling um, and is also much easier if you are um, uh, trying to remember uh, that recipe. Um, so at its base, it is really that formula, a ratio of ingredients. I think it is also um, a second definition. It is, I like to say, it's like reading um, a manual written in another language if you don't actually read the language. Um, it's technical writing. And by that, I mean that even in a modern-day recipe, and people are always asking me, oh, my heavens, America's Test Kitchen recipes, they are so, so so long. Why are they so long? Um, and part of the answer is because we try to leave out as little as possible. The assumption that you could make 50 or 100 years ago that the person reading the recipe would be able to fill in all of the, um, the missing information, we find is really just not reliable anymore. And so um, if we can describe not just how long something is, needs to cook, but what it will smell like, what it will look like, what it will feel like, um, as many different ways we can try to provide information. But even America's Test Kitchen uses a lot of these conventions from the technical writing that is a recipe. So the perfect example is the difference between one cup chopped walnuts and one cup walnuts, comma, chopped. Um, now, if you work at America's Test Kitchen, this is a test that you must pass. Uh, you, will, you, you will not be hired if you cannot pass this test. Um, but I gotta tell you, you're somebody who's trying to understand how to cook. You don't really probably get that one cup chopped walnuts means that you measure out chopped walnuts until they fill the one cup measure. And that one cup walnuts, comma, chopped, means you measure out the walnut halves or the, the whatever the pieces are, probably halves, until you fill one cup, take them out of the cup, and then chop them yourself. Now, besides the fact that this sounds basically insane, and by the way, if you work at America's Test Kitchen, you do need to be a bit insane, um, there's a practical difference. You probably have about 20% more nuts in the version that has one cup chopped walnuts because the smaller pieces will pack down into that volume measure in a way that you get more nuts if you chop them before you 
measure them in the measuring cup than if you measure the large pieces and then chop them. Um, which, of course, as an aside, all of you should not be using volume measures, meaning measuring cups and measuring spoons. You should be weighing ingredients because that is the way to actually be precise. But that's a, I digress. Um, the, <laughs> the, the, the larger point is that it is this form of technical writing that has a lot of conventions. America's Test Kitchen writes the same way that Rachel Ray or Martha Stewart would write a recipe. We use many of the same conventions. We didn't invent them. And they work for people who know what they mean. But in 2015, where there are more and more people who are trying to teach themselves how to cook, many of those conventions get in the way. Um, another practical example, those of you who um, don't like cilantro, I won't make you raise your hands about cilantro, um, maybe because that when you read the ingredient list, which is a shopping list and a prep list, you think you probably should prepare all the ingredients at the beginning of the recipe. And in many cases, if you're making a stir fry, that's a really good thing. You don't want to be chopping while you're trying to stir fry. That's not going to work. But if you're making a long cook dish, let's say you're making a stew that's going to be in the oven for three hours, if you chop that cilantro and then add it at the end of the recipe three hours later, you've now added um, all those lemony metallic notes that you don't like about cilantro are amplified. And that even though the recipe says one quarter cup chopped cilantro, it doesn't tell you that you actually should probably chop that at the last minute when you're adding it to a long cooked dish. That's the kind of thing that I know um, because I've been doing this for 30 years and I've been cooking for 40 years. But I think the person who's reading a recipe, nobody ever tells them to do that. Um, it's just assumed that maybe you pick that up along the way. So when I say that it's a form of technical writing, I think that's what I mean, and that it has these conventions, they're shared conventions, but they are somewhat mysterious to people who don't actually know the conventions. Third way besides formula and technical writing is that it is um, a cultural artifact, an icon. It is a way that um, people in a region, um, a, a country, can um, unite and identify. Um, you know, we have our dishes in Boston that we believe are our dishes in Boston and that we are very proud of. Um, and, you know, we had dishes as Americans that, you know, apple pie is American. And it is a thing that, uh, you know, Thanksgiving is this great unifier in many ways, um, in part because there it's a secular uh, holiday with no religious um, traditions. Uh, associated with it, but in part because there's a lot of shared food. I mean, everybody is screwing up the turkey at the same time. Um, and, you know, that's a fabulous, uh, and everybody's family is disagreeing. Um, uh, that's another fabulous, uh, hopefully about the food, not about the politics um, or something else, um, but it is a shared tradition, um, and it is based around a recipe. A, a fourth thing is that within a family, a recipe works as um, a way of binding one generation to the next. Um, I can make um, my grandmother Pizzarello's uh, you know, lasagna, and I am eight years old, and I'm back in her kitchen um, uh, trying to help and mostly being relegated to the table, um, along with my younger brother and my younger sister. And for the three of us, I make that dish. I am the cook in my family. Yes, I have 18 people coming for Thanksgiving next week. Um, that, that if you cook, people do come to your house for when it's Thanksgiving. Um, but when I make that dish, it's for my brother and my sister and myself. 
it is very much a way to connect with our, our grandmother who is no longer with us. Um, and, you know, for families, I think, you know, that is why people are so passionate about the food at Thanksgiving is for, it's not just does this taste good, but, you know, which grandmother's recipes are we making? Um, you know, which side of the family? If you get married, are you making your wife's dishes or yours? I mean, uh, my wife, when I first went to Thanksgiving at her house, they had no vegetables. I mean, I don't understand. I said, really? There are, uh, um, the, 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 ve the vegetables were pickles. Um, uh, uh, and, it was, and my mother-in-law is a fabulous cook, as was um, her mother and grandmother, and they would all be cooking. But honestly, I was like, seriously? It's all meat and all starch. Um, and there is pickles as the vegetable. My wife and I have dealt with that issue, and I, I'm allowed to make vegetables um, at our Thanksgiving. Um, Last way to think about a recipe is, especially if you're thinking about the recipe card, which really is largely a 20th century invention. Um, I know I have my uh, grandmother Pizzarello's recipe box. It's a little flowered box with a yellow and green and blue floral print. Um, has recipes in her own hand, has recipes from friends and family, has clippings that she got from newspapers and women's magazines. Um, but the recipe card, if you think about it, was a form of uh, social sharing. You know, before we would take a picture of what we were eating and then send it to all of our um, friends and family, basically saying, look at the fabulous place I am today, and you are not here at this restaurant. Um, but I am, and I'm having a good time. Um, the way that we sometimes shared food experiences was by the recipe card. Um, both of my grandmothers had actually printed recipe cards with their names on them um, from Kay's Kitchen or from Dorothy's Kitchen. And um, you would write a card and you would give it to a young member of your family, you'd give it to friends. Uh, they both, I know, had recipes from other people and often with um, uh, th that person's name on them. And so this um, recipe was a form of almost social commerce, of a way of um, sharing a dish that you were known for um, you know, oh, you know, so-and-so makes an amazing lasagna. Well, then everybody wants her lasagna recipe and becomes known in that social circle. Um, that, for my grandmother, Pizzarello, she was associated with lasagna. Uh, that and Brajol. Those were her dishes. And, you know, those were the dishes that everybody in the family, all of the people in her community, they, was, they had her recipes for those dishes. And so those traditions, um, for the most part, have been utterly disrupted by the uh, changes brought by the internet in the last 20 years. Um, and th this talk is not all, I mean, it feels very historical. Maybe I've been influenced by where I am the amount of time I'm talking about history. This is not a lament for, oh, I would like to go back. Um, I don't even want to go back to my childhood, let alone go back to the 19th century. Um, I'm totally fine staying in the 21st century. But I think one of the things that has changed is the plethora of recipes that we have. Um, so if you think about um, uh, sticking with my, my grandmothers, um, uh, by the, I was born, they were, and uh, they must have been about 50 um, uh, in terms of their age. They had probably each had three dozen recipes that they made, and they had been making those dishes for 30 odd years. They were really, really, really good cooks, in part because they had a very limited repertoire of recipes that they made over and over again. A lot of those were dishes that they learned from their own mothers. Um, and, you know, they became incredibly skilled at making the dishes that defined who they were. Um, if you think about now, you know, we mostly are getting um, uh, recipes from the Internet. 
there are, depending on how you count them, 100 million, 200 million, some, some number of millions of recipes in English. Um, some specific examples. Um, allrecipes.com is the largest, uh, uh, in terms of traffic, website in the U.S. dedicated to recipes. They're closing in on 60,000 recipes at allrecipes.com. Um, if you type in mashed potatoes, you get 1,000 results at just allrecipes.com. Uh, roast chicken gives you 750 recipes. Now, I'm sure collectively there's a lot of brain power here. We might be able to come up with 75 mashed potato recipes. Um, you know, cheesy mashed potatoes, garlic mashed potatoes. But a thousand mashed potato recipes from one website is an indication of the fact that we are in some ways overloaded with choices. Um, you know, many of those choices are great in the sense that we have access to recipes from all over the planet that has coincided with the fact that we now have access at Stop and Shop or Star Market to ingredients from all over the planet. And so that we really can make any dish from anywhere, um, pretty much anywhere in the United States now, um, which is certainly not true of America of my childhood. Um, but I think for the person who is trying to become the kind of cook that both of my grandmothers were, all of those choices are, in many ways, a distraction. Um, the media, and I think America's Test Kitchen is, by the way, just as guilty as anybody else in this. I mean, we've got 10,000 recipes on our website. Um, has put a very large value on new. Um, and I think, as with most things that are part of our culture, people are always interested in what's new, what's trendy. Um, and I think a lot of this also comes from the restaurant world, that more and more of us are taking our cues, thinking about how we eat, um, being based on how when we eat out. And I, I don't know for, about for, for you all, but for me, one of the great pleasures in eating out is to either, number one, eat something I would never make at home, or number two, to eat something I've never, ever had before. Um, I was actually in um, Nashville. Um, uh, I was at uh, Parnassus, the bookstore, uh, on Thursday of last week and ended up by surprise um, going to a restaurant where, I mean, I didn't really know where we were going, that we had a 12-course meal, half of which I can't even remember what it was or describe it because it was so weird and fabulous. Um, um, I had the best dessert of my life. And if I tell you it was layers of sorrel with walnut brittle and graham crackers and lemon ice cream, you're going to be like, he must sorrel being the leafy green, you, you, that I'm out of my mind. Um, but I think it was a fabulous experience because it was new, it was exciting, it was unexpected. And I think in many ways, the way we think about recipes at home, we've sort of said, oh, well, that's what recipe cooking at home should be. Um, and that if you, you know, you should make something different every night. It's like a restaurant. Um, and that the I, that it should be exciting. Um, and I'm here to argue that it should be the exact opposite, um, that cooking at home is about repetition and practice, and that if you are somebody who wants to become a good cook, that you do not become a good cook by making something different every single night. Um, the, even the best recipe, even one that is written by America's Test Kitchen, in your hands is probably not going to be perfect the first time you make it. Um, there, there are sort of two ways a recipe can be imperfect. Um, one is you can actually make a mistake, um, and that's, that's on you. Um, you, just, you just didn't read the recipe carefully. Uh, you made one of those substitutions that you weren't supposed to make. Um, and we all know you all make substitutions all the time. Um, and so, um, obviously, the, 
you know, that mistake, if you make the recipe the second and the third and the fourth time, hopefully you learn from that mistake. Um, the second way a recipe can be imperfect is that it can be not to your taste in terms of seasoning. It can be too salty. It can be too, too spicy. It can be too garlicky. Um, in America's Test Kitchen, one of the things that I think is the power of what we do is that the recipe is not developed by just one person and one person's palate. And so there's always an internal group of eight or ten people um, who are working on that recipe, usually one person doing the lead cooking, but the rest of the, the group chiming in with their two cents about how to make the recipe better, but also helping to resolve issues about seasoning. Um, we also then send out most of our recipes uh, all the recipes in the magazine and, and high-value selected recipes in the books for pre-publication road testing to people like you. So we send out and we will get 50 to 100 people to make the recipe before we publish it. And one of the most valuable things we get out of that is about seasoning. You know, if um, a third of the people think the chili is too spicy, a third think it's too mild, and a third think it's just right, well, obviously, it's just right. It may not be just right for you, but it is just right as a recipe in terms of how we want to publish it. Um, you know, if 80% of the people say it's too spicy, then it's actually too spicy, and we need to take down the, the spice level. Um, but I think that notion of making a recipe repetition and practice is designed to do two things. One is that you will actually get better at making that dish. And so the second time you make that dish, the third time you make that dish, it becomes better not only because you are less likely to make um, a mistake, but because you are customizing it to your personal taste, to your family's taste, to your schedule. And it's a recipe that works better for you because you have owned it in some way. And that if you've only made a recipe once and never made it again, that recipe has failed its true purpose, um, as far as I'm concerned, even if you liked it, it didn't really do its main thing, which was to become your recipe and to really become something that you own. I think the second um, reason that you want to make a recipe more than once is that you will understand some fundamental cooking principles, that you understand how the recipe works, and that even if you decide after six or seven times that you want to greatly alter the dish, you've understood the, the, under, the basic formula, the technique. Um, you've basically sort of lifted up the hood of, on the recipe and then you understand how it works. And so when I go shopping um, and, and I'm completely like not following a recipe, which by the way, drives my wife insane. She's like, you work at America's Test Kitchen. You, shouldn't you be following a recipe? And you know, my response is, well, I, felt, I followed the recipe eight times and I now know what I, I'm comfortable freelancing. Um, so to speak, and responding to what I see at the market and customizing that recipe because I've absorbed the underlying principles embedded in that recipe so that I'm comfortable knowing where it's elastic and where it's not. Like what kind of changes I can make to that recipe that will be successful and what kind of things are absolutely fundamental to the recipe that I can't change. And that only really comes through the repetition of that particular dish. And that, yes, you will probably in, uh, develop really great knife skills if every single night for the next year you make a different dish every single night. You will get some skills out of it, but you're really not gonna understand um, uh, you know, the sort of underpinning, the coding behind the recipes if you are constantly um, flitting from one recipe to the next. So um, this book um, and this project uh, which was really, we're, we work as um, 
I like to say extreme collaboration in America's Test Kitchen in the sense that we always all work together. But this was uh, my baby and my, my lead on uh, this particular project with the 100 Recipes book because I really wanted um, this to put forth this notion that a small list of recipes um, had a lot of value. And yes, there is the whole um, sort of uh, newsy nature of a list, what's on the list, what's off the list, um, just like the 10 you know, best books of the year, the 10 best movies of the year. But I think there's actually a prescriptive value to the list that is perhaps different um, than a list of the 10 best books of the year. Um, for the most part, uh, you know, I, I will want to read a book once and I may want to check off, you know, if the New York Times, 10 best books of the year, you know, maybe I've read two, maybe I have three, maybe it'll uh, encourage me to go buy a fourth book on that list. But I don't go back to those books for the most part. I mean, I read them once and they're stored somewhere, um, you know, either in my, this cloud or in some other cloud. Um, and I may have some memories of them, um, but I'm moving on to another book. I think with the recipe, the whole point of putting together this list was to make a uh, list that um, would be a springboard for individuals to then even make a smaller list of recipes that he or she wanted to master. And that that list could be as short as five recipes, could be three recipes. Um, and that you're going to make a commitment to make five recipes five times each over the next three months and to really sort of learn those recipes. And that this is a case of hopefully less is more. Um, so then, of course, my guess is you all are all thinking to yourself, okay, like 100 recipes in a universe of 200 million recipes, even in the universe of America's Test Kitchen where... Um, in total, between our books and websites and magazines, we have 20,000 recipes in our archives that we've developed since 1992. How on earth did you pick 100 recipes? So my first thought was I was going to do this the way we do most things, which was collaboratively. So I tapped um, the 10 most senior people at the company because I thought I really wanted people who had the long view of all the recipes we had ever done, um, who I felt like had a good view uh, in not necessarily that they knew every one of the 20,000 possible candidates, but that they knew thousands and thousands of the possible candidates and would nominate 10 recipes each. Seems very simple. 10 people, 10 recipes. Um, I got lists back. I totaled them up. My spreadsheet had 1,600 recipes on it. <laughs> yeah, um, people were not really following the instructions, as you might imagine. So I said, okay, I am not going to engage in trying to, you know, whittle 1,600 down to um, 100. I'm just going to make the list myself. Um, uh, I, I did rely on the uh, expert collaborative advice of one trusted colleague in the, on the book team um, who sort of took some recipes on and took some off, but said, okay, we're going to do it this way. And um, as I did this, I said, okay, I'm going to need a system. I'm going to need to be able to justify these selections, um, not only to you all or to people who might want to buy the book, but frankly, to my colleagues, because they were not that happy when I told them I was just going to do it myself. Um, and so I came up with three different ways of um, inducting a recipe, so to speak, into this collection. Um, the first is utility. Um, things that if you cook at home, you just are going to make and that you really should be able to make a credible version of. 
um, a quick tomato sauce that you can make in 20 minutes from a can of tomatoes uh, while the pasta water comes to a boil and you cook the pasta is a perfect example. Everybody should be able to make a decent tomato sauce uh, in 20 minutes. Um, everybody should be able to make a great grilled cheese sandwich or fry an egg. So uh, about a third of the, the recipes got into the, to the, the collection really from that notion of utility and that they are things that uh, you make over and over again. Um, the second category came from um, things that I felt like the test kitchen had done such inventive work, and so inventiveness was the criteria, that we were changing the conversation about this recipe in modern American cooking circles. And that our, uh, we basically had made something relevant that people didn't think was relevant. Um, two examples. One comes from um, my friend Becky Hayes, who's on America's Test Kitchen with me. And um, we were having a discussion, it must have been about 10 years ago, about one of the things that I used to love to make with my grandmother was manicotti. And so you buy the dried uh, tubes, you boil them, you shock them in ice water, you drain them, you fill the pastry bag with ricotta, uh, parmesan, basil, garlic, some eggs, pipe those into the tubes, put the tubes in the baking dish, and then cover it with tomato sauce. Largely in part because of the noodles and um, as well as the pastry bag, this is a recipe that feels like Italian grandmothers make, but who on earth is going to make this recipe in 2015? Um, and my colleague Becky said, well, what about the no-boil lasagna noodles, which didn't exist when you were a kid and your grandmother was making them? What if we soaked them in the baking dish that we were eventually going to cook the manicotti in uh, until they were pliable, and then spread the ricotta mixture over with a, sp a spoon and simply rolled up the noodle into a tube. Lo and behold, when you put them into the dish, which you've then taken the water out of, and cover them with tomato sauce and bake it, it eats and looks like my grandmother's manicotti, but it is a recipe that has eliminated all of the fuss. Um, so that would be one example of a recipe where I felt like the, the inventiveness um, sort of puts this recipe back in the canon. You know, I think everybody needs a cheesy pasta casserole as well, um, preferably something with tomato sauce, that it's just a great dish to be able to have for family cooking, for uh, more flexible sort of, you know, it's a dish that doesn't de demand on everyone being ready um, and 30 seconds later being sitting, sitting down at the table. Um, the second example in this category is poached chicken. So I say poached chicken, and my guess is half of you are thinking cafeteria, and half of you are thinking hospital food. Um, you know, I, I, I guess the cafeteria is better than thinking about hospital food, but pretty much it's the same dish in both places. Um, it is bland and boring. But if you think about the ways that we cook boneless, skinless chicken breasts, largely we use dry heat cooking methods, grilling, broiling, hot saute pan. And, um, the, the real challenge with boneless, skinless chicken breasts is that it goes from inedible because it's going to make you very, very sick because it's not up to temperature to inedible, inedible, it's okay, to it's overcooked and it's inedible. And so, you know, it, there's, there's not much margin for error. If you undercook it, you are really, really, really sorry. Um, you are less sorry if you overcook it, but it's still not all that pleasurable. And those high heat methods, because they involve so much energy, the margin between it's now safe and it's palatable to it's now chalky and dry and not very palatable is basically 20 seconds in a lot of those recipes. 
Poaching, because it involves water at 175 degrees, widens the window that you can get this right. There's not that much energy in the pot, especially since we bring the water up to 175 degrees, add the chicken, and turn off the heat, put the lid on, and let residual heat cook the chicken. So there's almost no danger that you're going to overcook the chicken. And the, it will hang out at the proper temperature of 160 for a considerable period of time. The second thing is um, it allows you to do the thing. Uh, those of you who are friends of America's Test Kitchen know that we like to brine our foods, um, you know, and certainly our turkeys. Um, we definitely want to brine them. But boneless, skinless chicken breasts, soaking them in a salt water solution, that is brining, does two things. It seasons them. You know, they're pretty bland. It also changes the muscle structure so that the proteins hold onto the natural juices in the chicken better. And so we decided that we were going to skip the French technique of turning that poaching liquid into a sauce, like what they would do in a restaurant, is you would cook 50 chicken during the course of the day in that pot, and then you would be turning that stock into sauce. Four boneless, skinless chicken breasts for dinner are not going to flavor a pot of water. And there is no sauce that you're going to be able to get out of it. So you may as well just make it super, super salty so that it seasons the chicken and protects it from overcooking. And then we made raw sauces. Um, we had a variety of options, my favorite being a riff on salsa verde, uh, cornichon, capers, parsley, olive oil, and garlic, which basically answers, okay, how are you going to make this not bland? Um, the chicken is perfectly cooked. It's seasoned, but it's still a little boring. But it, you can make a great sauce, um, a raw sauce. We have a creamy yogurt sauce with uh, herbs and spices or a warm um, spice, ginger, shallot, and cherry tomato sauce that you can serve with this. So this is an example of where I feel like the, the collection has some recipes that are perfectly well suited to um, the home cook, but uh, the, the test kitchen is going to change your mind about what you think this dish is, and that if you think poached chicken is something that you would only make if you had to, um, we're, we're here to tell you otherwise. So in addition to utility and inventiveness, the third criteria was diversity. Um, I think the thing that has been great about what the internet has done for the food world is that everything seems possible. Um, this is, of course, coincided with the way food distribution works and that we can now get, you know, amazing spices from India or we can get really great olive oil from, uh, from Spain. Um, and that, you know, everything is available everywhere pretty much all of the time. And so it was really important as we were talking about this book that the 100 recipes not look like my grandmother's list or, or my mother's list because, you know, the, the thing that is great about what's happened in the food world is the fact that there's so many now dishes that are available uh, that make sense for us at home. And so the recipes that I chose that sort of fit this mold, I was really looking for one of two things. Um, one, that it was a better way to prepare a familiar ingredient, or perhaps a more exciting way to prepare a familiar ingredient. Or two, it was a better way to make a familiar dish. Uh, two examples. So um, uh, those of you who have not had Mexican street corn, so you get this on the street in lots of places in Mexico. It's grilled often and then slathered with cheese and lime juice and garlic um, and some crema, which is like sort of like sour cream. It is the best way, especially if you're like 
you know, I know August seems or September seems like distant memory now at this point, and we all wish we had corn. But you remember, you get to that point of the summer where you're like, oh my God, we have to have corn again. Um, this is the best way to cook corn. You grill it with a little bit of chili oil brushed on it. Uh, it's just simply chili powder and vegetable oil. When it comes off the grill, you roll it in this mixture, um, sour cream, mayonnaise, a little bit of, uh, you can use feta or if you can get cojita cheese, um, some lime, and it's just a great, great way that, you know, allows you to sort of experience corn in certainly way, unless you grew up in a, you know, a Mexican-American family, you probably weren't that familiar with Mexican street corn. Um, but it's now, you see it on restaurant menus, and it, it makes sense at home. It's a dish, most people have a grill, and most people can buy all of those ingredients that you then put on, on the corn. Um, second category here was dishes that, um, from other cultures, that basically forced, um, I think will force the home cook to reevaluate a technique or a, a, a dish in a sort of larger way. Um, personally, I never liked American beef stew. Um, it seems very heavy and muddy to me with the red wine and, all, and the stock. I think the peas and the carrots and the uh, potatoes uh, are pretty boring. I mean, no, no offense, but the peas are frozen and bland. Um, the carrots seem to lose a lot of character along the way. And it's just a dish that it's fine, but um, the biggest problem with the dish is it's, it's a pain in the neck. Um, you end up having to brown all of that meat before you make the stew, and your stovetop is covered with grease. So uh, Brian Roof, another one of my colleagues uh, who's on America's Test Kitchen with me, um, uh, was talking to a Spanish chef uh, and, uh, about a uh, dish from um, uh, the Catalan region that is a beef stew, but that not only makes the dish better in the sense that it tastes better, but simplifies the dish. Um, so the dish begins with a sofrito. Um, so you are developing the flavor by cooking the onions, the spices. There's a little bit of cinnamon in this, bay leaves, um, some grated fresh tomato, and really cooking the vegetables rather than the meat to create the, the backbone of flavor. And so that step is really important, but it's mostly hands-off. Uh, work. Um, you then add the meat without browning directly to the pot. Um, we use boneless short ribs because basically they're ready to go and who doesn't like short ribs? Um, water and then white wine. The acidity of the white wine works better with the cinnamon and the sort of floral notes that are in the dish and it sort of lightens it up. But the real thing that makes the dish are the two things that, uh, that you then add at the end. So you then cook, you know, put the cover on, put it in the oven, and you cook it like stew. Um, when you are ready to serve it, you stir in something called a piccata. Uh, a piccata is like a rough pesto, except it is made by toasting almonds in olive oil in a hot skillet um, until they're fragrant, putting them into the food processor, adding some leftover baguette or country white bread, and frying that in the leftover olive oil adding that into uh, the food processor, and then adding parsley and garlic and pureeing it. And then you stir this incredibly flavorful piccata into the finished stew. It's obviously adding freshness. You're getting all that flavor. Um, it's also thickening the nuts and the bread. There's no flour in the stew, which I think sometimes makes uh, beef stew very, very um, sort of heavy and pasty and gummy. Um, so the, 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 it gets thickened at the end with almonds uh, and uh, really good bread that's been fried in olive oil, which is way more flavorful than thickening a stew with um, uh, flour. 
The other thing that I love about this dish is it says, we're just going to do the one vegetable and we're going to saute gorgeous oyster mushrooms in a pan at the last minute and stir oyster mushrooms. You could use button mushrooms, cremini mushrooms in at the last minute. And rather than cooking them for three hours with everything else in the stew to the point where they've lost all their character, we're just going to put them in a hot pan for six minutes, brown them and stir them in with the piccata and you're done. Um, and so what I love about this dish is I actually think it's way more flavorful and it's less work than the beef stew that I learned um, when I was you know, learning how to cook. Everybody has to learn how to make a beef stew. Um, and so the dishes that represent um, what I'm calling the sort of diversity group that are really from all around the world uh, fall into, um, you know, really try to hit the, that metric of a dish that I think really makes sense at home that forces you to look at an ingredient or perhaps um, a category of uh, dishes in a, uh, in a markedly different way. Um, one last thing, uh, and then I'm going to I'm going to start taking all of your questions. I'm going to preempt though what is the my favorite recipe in the book because I sort of feel like the the the, the, the question is coming. Um, I'm going to I'm going to punt by um, uh, choosing the recipe that I have made the most often. So those of us who cook for children, um, I have a, two daughters, 20 and 16 years old. Uh, we know that we are somewhat slaves to their tastes. Um, and there is by far their favorite dish in, uh, in the book. Uh, my 20 year old, uh, who was flying home, uh, Friday from college has already put in her request wanting to know, is this going to be on the menu this weekend? Um, it is the pork tinga. So it's a tostada that is a tinga is a spicy pork stew. Um, and what I think my kids, and this is a dish that we've probably made, um, two or three Sundays a month for the last eight or 10 years. Um, so it's a dish I know pretty well at this point. I don't need to read the recipe anymore. Um, what I think they love about this dish is I make the tostadas and I make the tinga pretty much always the same way. But then there are all those things you put on the table when you're making Mexican food. I will do a, a, a vinegary slaw. I will do a tomato salsa, guacamole. Uh, fresh cilantro leaves. Um, I will do some sort of Mexican crema where I'll just basically take sour cream and thin it with some milk, and I will call that Mexican crema. Um, and I think for kids, what they, my kids always loved about this is, first of all, they love Mexican food, but second of all, they basically got to customize it. And, you know, I had one of my kids who would eat three quarters of the guacamole um, that got got made. You know, that's that's her condiment of choice. My other daughter is a real heat freak, so I make a super spicy salsa to put on top of this, and she would be eating that. Um, but I think I love the idea that every single time my daughter's now a junior at college. So we've been down, we've been to this rodeo before for coming home on break. And it's like kind of predictable what her question is going to be. Is it, is, are we having the tingo on Saturday or on Sunday? Uh, when, when I got home and I love that idea of this dish, um, that, for uh, that I love, my wife loves, both my kids love, we may all love it for somewhat different reasons, but it is this shared experience. And is this, you know, for, for my 20 year old, that dish says home, um, that dish says, you know, daddy, um, she has put in, my wife is a pastry chef, don't worry, she's put in her bake goods order with my wife about, you know, which cookies she is expecting to have at her first supper back home from college. But um, that dish for me and for my kids, just has a lot of meaning because it is a dish that we have had hundreds of times uh, sitting around the dining room table. Thank you.